first thing is you got to have an early morning start. Like you want to be on your way up the peak as it's getting light. The second thing is you got to be prepared for inclement weather. You definitely have to take rain gear. You got to take some extra warm gear. You want to take plenty of water. You want to take plenty of snacks and things. And you want to try to be on the top of the, the peak by midday at the latest. Hi, I'm Reed Singh, and this is Adventure Travel with Troop Outside, a podcast where we interview adventurers, local guides, and outdoor industry experts to uncover the best travel spots and human-powered adventures from around the globe. Before we jump in, I have a quick favor to ask you, that if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It would truly mean a lot. All right, thank you so much uh, for being with me today, Bill. I really appreciate your time. I know you're very busy running a business, but also getting out on the water uh, and fighting the fight for conservation, which I want to learn more about and uh, dig deep into what it takes to protect a river uh, and what the different factors are that go into it. But Bill Dvorak from Salida and DVK Rafting, welcome on the show. And I'd love to learn where your journey started with rafting and uh, how long you've been running rafting trips and what were you doing maybe before that? Well, I think it actually started, I grew up on a ranch in northern Wyoming and I had a, a cousin who used to take me canoeing on the North Platte River. And then we, the ranch was actually a boundary with the Tongue River. So I've kind of been around rivers basically all my life. And then um, when I went to New Zealand, I worked at the Outward Band School and they sort of introduced me to kayaking. Okay. And so I started whitewater kayaking in New Zealand in the uh, sort of early 70s. But I also had an outdoor education center in Australia where I started a canoe program. So, again, I've been around water a long time. But how I got into rafting was uh, when I came back in 1979, I was five and a half years in Australia and a year and a half in New Zealand and a year coming home through Asia, about four and a half months of that climbing in Nepal. I wow. went to the University of Colorado for my master's degree in alternative and experiential education. And uh, I was looking around for an internship and they offered me a job to coordinate the Partners River Program, which was a program that worked with kids who'd been arrested and they matched them up with adult volunteers. And one of the things they provided as a mechanism to facilitate a relationship between the kid and the adult was a multi-day river trip. And it was also an incentive for people to volunteer because they got a basically a free multi-day river trip. So I did that for five years and uh, we were actually the most successful recidivistic program in the country for those five years. Oh, and, wow. Uh, what an incredible way to, to help those kids. So anyway, after uh, Ronnie Reagan got elected, he decided it was better to incarcerate people than divert them. We <sighs> were keeping kids out of jail for seven, $8,000 a year. And it was oh. 30 to 50 to keep them in jail. And, Funds got tight. Long story short, they asked me to buy the company out because they were in financial straits. And so I did and moved down here to the Arkansas and been here for almost 40 years now. Wow. Uh, one of the earliest river rafting companies in Colorado? Or you know, I actually have the first river license in the state of Colorado. Okay. I've got the number one license. But wow. I think there might have been some other companies around uh, before sure. me, but they just they kind of faded away. There's, there's not around anymore. Wow. That is, uh, I want to see that plaque. That's got to be a, you know, for a state that has so many rafting companies and so many great rivers. Uh, that's, you probably have a lot of adventures under your belt, 
over the years. We got a few. Yeah. Uh, so Salida, uh, the Arkansas River runs right through it. A lot of people don't know exactly, you know, it's not as popular, I would say, maybe as Breckenridge or Vail and some of the ski resort towns, but we absolutely love Salida. Uh, for those that don't know Salida, Buena Vista, and some of these smaller towns, they're only a couple of hours away from, from Denver. Uh, what are some different adventures that uh, one could do in the area if they had, let's say, three or five days? And I know you guys even offer multi-day adventures, uh, different activities. What are, what yeah, we offer a multi-sport package. We, we always try to package it with an overnight trip on the river, but there's great mountain biking here. We have uh, 14ers out the backyard here. I'm actually looking at one right now at my office window. So I think of the 54 14ers in the state of Colorado, 28 of them occur along the Arkansas drainage. And I think 18 of those occur here in Chickpea <clears throat> County. So we have great hiking. We've got good rock climbing. We've got uh, gold medal fishing. Some people have probably heard about the spill that happened in Durango a few years ago. Well, we had a much worse spill back in the uh, late 80s here on this river when the Yak Tunnel and California Gulch up out of Leadville spilled and basically okay. wiped out all the fish and all the invertebrates on the river. And I was lucky enough to have taken our current senator, Tim Wirth, on several river trips. And though I went back to Washington, D.C. and talked with him, and he got me lunch with the guy who did the funding for the EPA sites, the senator who was in charge of that. And uh, we got an EPA Superfund site designation. And then wow. by 1992, we had cleaned up the river. And in 2002, we actually got the river designated 102 miles of gold metal water. And that doubled the amount of gold metal water in the state of Colorado. So we have a tremendous fishery here. And then there's all sorts of other things, horseback riding, zip lines, uh, kayaking, inflatable kayaking. There's, there's a, a variety of things that we can do here on our multi-day trips. That's incredible. Um, I know we, I think, spent a week there. And within that week, we were able to climb a 14er. It was one of my friend's birthday. We, he came out to visit. We climbed a 14er, rafted down the river in one of your inflatable kayaks, and went mountain biking, or went to the hot springs within 48 hours. And to yep. be able to squeeze in, I think if, if you had to pick more adventures per square mile, uh, it's a tough place to beat. Well, when we first moved here, um, this place was going, it was dying. They'd closed the Climax molybdenum mine, and uh, they were kind of desperate for someone to be the president of the chamber. So I'd been here about three years, but I was kind of a relative newcomer, but they gave me the job. And okay. um, I sort of recognized this as going to be a recreational me mecca and started promoting it and uh, got, got us listed in Outside Magazine as not one of the 10 best recreational destinations, but honorable mention. And it sort of spiraled since, since then. And then the other thing that happened was uh, the state of Colorado passed a legislating bill that said that counties could go ahead and pass a lodging tax where you could tax people who were staying in your motels and hotels and then use that money for marketing. And so that bill or that vote had previously not passed in Chaffee County, but two times. And I reinvigorated that and we actually won by 14 votes and got a Chaffee County Visitors Bureau. And our first year, our budget was $80,000. And I actually resigned as the chairman of that committee in 2016 to run for county commissioner and our budget was $550,000. Wow, oh, that's amazing. 
and you can yeah it goes right back to those hotels and those restaurants and everybody benefits it's yeah. a it's a great way to get people there and be able to have the voice where you can do it responsibly and share the message coming directly from from the visitors bureau or different uh, voices uh you mentioned that the the during the spill i was curious by the time you guys cleaned up the river did the those species and fish come back uh, yeah no actually they've come back really strong like i say to have to be gold medal designated water, you've got to have so many fish per mile and so many pounds of fish per mile. And there's a whole thing. And we've exceeded that designation by about fourfold. So okay. it's a tremendous fishery. That's amazing. Uh, on that topic of conservation and all of your hard work of working with the senators, going to Washington, uh, fighting that fight, uh, tell me, I'm so curious to see and uh, learn more about the work that you did to turn the Browns Canyon area into, you were mentioning a national monument. Yeah. And it's kind of a long was, story. We got time. <laughs> so anyway, we start, we started working on that project 20 some years ago and we were always trying to get it designated as wilderness. Okay. And we started out with about 108,000 acres that we were gonna designate as wilderness. And we came very close um, when Joel Hefley was our local Congressman. We had every legislator, federal legislator in the state of Colorado back the bill. And all it had to do had passed the Senate. It just needed to come to a vote in the House. And Joel Hefley was the head of the Ethics Committee. And there was a Texas legislator named John DeLay who did some things that weren't ethical. And um, the Republican Party just wanted uh, the Ethics Committee to slap his hand and say, be a good boy from here on out. Don't do anything. But uh, Joel Hefley said, no, he did something unethical. We have to censor him. And so in retaliation for him censoring that, they didn't let his bill come to a vote. And uh, the next person that came in at that, uh, at that legislative position uh, was angry with, with uh, Joel because he didn't support him. And it was a long mm. story. And anyway, a three-way race. He won by about two points. And so it was kind of dormant for a while. And then when I worked at Outward Bound, Mark Udall was my boss. And so he was our senator. And I was actually working for the National Wildlife Federation. And I went to talk to him about some issues that we had. And he sort of asked me to stay after the meeting and asked me if I would take his son and train him to be a river guide. And I said, sure. And I said, there's another thing. Is, is there any way I could get you to reintroduce a Browns Canyon wilderness bill? And he said, well, let me think about it. And he called me back about a week later and said, you know what we're going to do? We'd never get a wilderness bill through this Congress. But if we can work the right way with Obama, we can probably get a national monument through. And so we jumped through a lot of hoops for about a year and a half, had big public meetings, had all sorts of show me trips, all that stuff. I probably made six trips back to D.C. meeting with people. And uh, long story short, it was the first wilderness-oriented national monument that Obama designated. He did the um, Pullman District in Chicago, and he did the uh, an, an area that had been a Japanese internment camp in Hawaii, and he did Browns Canyon. And we kind of used that as the model to go ahead and then show people what he needed to see to do a national monument. And in the end, he designated more country as national monument than any president in history. So it was and, kind of good uh, to set that precedent. Just 
the appreciation of the amount of work it takes to get some of these things through. It's a long-term, just fight the fight to keep going. Yeah. And thank you for doing that. And we hope that all of us keep fighting the fight for more places that we, we love. Uh, yeah. But just to- well, just, just to finish that story, one of the things that was cool about it was I was then invited back to the Oval Office for the official signing. And so nice. I have pictures in my uh, in my office and stuff here with shaking the president's hand. With we had uh, both our senators, we had our congressmen, we had the head of the uh, the Forest Service, we had the head of the BLM, we had the head of G GQ, their environmental group, and so it was a pretty robust group. Sally Jewell was there, the Secretary of the Interior. That's really amazing. And help us understand what comes with these protections. What what's the threat otherwise? Well. For a long time here, the resistance to um, designating it as a wilderness bill was they people would say, well, we like it the way it is. We don't want to change it. We, do, we don't think that, you know, we can have access to it. We can fish, we can hunt, we can do all those kinds of things. And so you just never know. And uh, we just kept saying, well, without permanent protection, we don't know what will happen. And suddenly... Um, the big part of Browns Canyon was actually designated as a wilderness study area. And part of that wilderness study area protection was there was a mineral withdrawal and that mineral withdrawal expired. And usually the BLM has some time to go ahead and reinstitute that. But there was a mining group down in Nevada that filed an appeal and they won and said, no, you know, we, it's open. And so all of a sudden we had four mining claims on the Arkansas River uh, in Browns Canyon. Mm. And I think that was one of the things that helped convince a lot of people that, yes, there are potential threats out there and nobody wants to have gold mining and dredging and all that sort of stuff on a, on a gold metal river, plus the most popular whitewater stretch in the country. And so that, I think, brought a few more people around to our side and, and lowered the resistance. Yeah, and uh, I think that's what what a lot of us could get engaged in, in the boundary waters and different places. The threat to these areas and surrounding areas is usually mining and its long-term impact of, of the water quality and the species and not just your recreation sport. So uh, thank you for doing that, fighting that fight. And then, uh, you know, we're doing everything you're doing to protect these places not just as a business, but you're doing this above and beyond the, your rafting business. And it's for all of us, you're planting the seeds uh, of the trees we get to enjoy shade for. for, for many well, years. the other thing for about 10 years, I worked for the National Wildlife Federation and we did a lot of work on oil and gas and trying to get oil and gas developed much more sustainably and, and with conservation in mind. And we, we had some, some pretty good successes. Uh, during the Obama administration, and sort of that kind of went by the wayside afterwards. But you know, it, at least we we set some precedents of, of some certain things, and some certain uh, oil and gas companies sort of continued to comply with sort of the rules and regulations. And then some of the stuff that we instituted was actually passed here in the state of Colorado. And for a number of years, Colorado had the most uh, restrictive oil and gas rules in the country. And so we, again, that protects a lot of the headwaters and primarily big game and um, wildlife habitat and migration routes and calving and lambing areas and all those kinds of things. Yeah, that's uh, 
just even being on the table, being at the table with, with conservation in mind, it can make a lot of difference where, you know, you don't have to stop maybe the, the drilling, but how can we do it in, like you said, in a more sustainable way and, and considering all the other impacts, maybe we could come up with ways to do it with the least amount of environmental impact. Um, rafting trips. So you've got 50 years of rafting experience, just doing some math backwards and running, mm -hmm. being on the water. And you're, you're saying the, one of the best rivers to run around the country, maybe the world is the Arkansas river and the Browns Canyon stretch. What in, what makes it so unique for you? What, what do you love about it? And what do people love about it? What makes it gives it that uh, title? Well, again, I think the biggest thing about a river is it's kind of like a living entity. Every day that you go on it, it's different. The water level can be different. The weather can be different. The group of people that you can be different. There's just all sorts of things that change on a daily basis. So I guess the big thing is it doesn't get boring. <laughs> you know, it's just always challenging. It's always exciting. And uh, it's always different. So it's uh, yeah. it's just kind of a living, breathing entity in its own regards. And you learn to sort of, I guess, become one with the river in a lot of ways. And that's what kept me attracted to it or got me attracted to it. Like I said, I grew up on a small ranch in Wyoming and there was a, a river as one of our boundaries of our, our property. And so I've been around rivers since I was, you know, like two years old, I guess, is when I first remember being seeing the river. And, uh, you know, I, again, different things started out canoeing, kayaking, and eventually worked my way into rafting probably in the, uh, in the late 70s, I guess, is when I started rafting. Okay. And then Browns Canyon specifically, is it going, how long is the stretch? Uh, is it half day trip, full day, overnights? What are the options if someone's interested in running the Browns Canyon? Yes, you can do all those all things. Those, all of those Most trips. popular thing is a half day trip, which is about 10, 11 miles. Okay. And, uh, but there's a full day trip that goes about 17, 18 miles. And then there's an overnight trip where we start well above Browns Canyon, clear up above Buena Vista and then float into Browns Canyon Wilderness Area for our overnight camp and then float out of it the next day. Okay. And we can also do- Can finish in Salida? It just depends on the water level. Uh, okay. If the water's high, it's easier to get all the way to Salida. As the water starts to drop, there's a takeout called Big Bend. And when the water gets pretty low, we, we start using a takeout called Stone Bridge. And it just depends on, we, we spend about the same amount of time on the water but it just takes longer when the water drops to go that distance. Makes and we sense. do have also multi-day trips. We can do as many as three and four days on the Arkansas and just continue downstream. So okay. it's, it's, it's not as popular as say the half day, one day overnight trips, but uh, we get certain groups that, that want to do that. Okay. And then uh, the water level is all fed by snow melts, right? There's no dams or upriver. There, there is no drams per se on the Arkansas River, but what happens is um, in the summer and kind of carry over from the winter, there is water that is brought through tunnels from the Aspen area. It's called the Frying Pan Arkansas Project, and they've actually drilled a tunnel through the mountains, and they bring water over from there, and they store it in upstream reservoirs, in Clear Creek and Turquoise reservoirs. And then they can release that during the season. 
And we have what's called a voluntary flow program where we work with the Southeast Water Conservancy District and the um, towns of Aurora and Pueblo and Colorado Springs to try to, because they all get a pretty good economic bump from the river in the economic um, uh, substance it brings, you know, with motels and restaurants and travelers mm -hmm. coming through, they, they all realize the economic value of the river. So they're okay. kind of willing to work with us to keep water in the river. And so the voluntary flow program is designed to keep us at a minimum of 700 CFS through the middle of August. Okay. And we're about the only river in the state that has that sort of a guarantee. So uh, it gives us a longer season. And, uh, you know, then there's some things that happen, like they can exchange water. So they've been exchanging water all spring and the water has been sort of you know, a thousand twelve hundred, and they just quit doing that. So now the river has come up; it's coming up five hundred CFS today, um, okay. just because they've quit doing that uh, that exchange, and they start bringing it up as at fifty CFS an hour. So it goes over a five-hour period, and again, that's for the aquatic life to sort of acclimatize itself to what's going on with the resource, and you know, not just get flushed away, sort of thing. Sure. Wow, I'm learning so much. There's so little that I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel that way every single time I jump on a podcast with, uh, with one of our offers. Um, so you guys run not just the Arkansas River. You have uh, the Colorado River trips, Dolores, Green River, Gunnison, North Platte, San Miguel. So what are, the, are they seasonal? What is the best time to go rafting in Colorado? And what are some of your other... Uh, trips, uh, rivers that you enjoy. And if there's a thing or two about some of those rivers that you'd like to share with us, that would be awesome. Well, our two main rivers are obviously the Arkansas because we're based here. And the next river would be the Gunnison Gorge, which is again, it's called a national conservation area that was added to a national monument to upgrade it to a national park. And um, we run mostly fishing trips on that. And again, it's it's sort of dam control. It's below Blue Mesa and all those reservoirs upstream, Curriconte, Morrow Point. And so it's got a, a reliable flow all year long. And it is also a gold medal fishery, but it's only 14 miles long. And so we do fishing trips there. And they're kind of unique in that there's a road that goes into the wilderness area, but then stops. And so you have to hike or horse pack all your gear in that last mile to the river. So we have to go the day before and horse pack everything down and put all the boats together in the frames and put everything together. And then the next day we pick up our clients and bring them around and they have to hike their personal gear in that last mile. And most of our fishing trips are actually three days long. Three days is a long time to spend on 14 miles. 14 fishing miles. is so good that, <laughs> you know, everybody's happy to do that. Yeah. And so that's probably our other main resource. And again, it's probably the most tightly regulated river in the country in that there are only two commercial launches a day and you can only have a total of 12 people per launch. So if we have eight fishermen, we have a guide for every two fishermen. So we have four guides and eight clients. And so that's, uh, you know, you know, right now I'm in the middle of what's called stonefly season where there's this very large bug, a size four, if they're your fisherman, called a Terranarsis, that hatches at this time of year and then it's followed by a golden stone, followed by a yellow sally. So there's a whole series of stoneflies that hatch in the month of June. 
and people will come from all over the country and all over the world to fish that hatch. And okay. so I have back to back to back to back trips, five trips in a row, um, late May into early into the end of June. And then we have a few more. And then the next best time to fish it is September. But we okay. also do some recreational trips in there as well. And they most of them are two days where we just go in and camp overnight one night and uh, do some hiking and sort of look around. And then next day you're out of the river again. Got and it. the Colorado is kind of just like a normal river. It, uh, it's peaking right now at this time of year, but it also has some upstream dams. So it has a consistent flow. And usually around somewhere around seven, 800 CFS is toward the, the end of the season. Right now, I believe it's probably running about uh, 2,500 to 3,000. Oh, wow. Because it's moving. Because the all snow that is late, melting. That, all that late season snow that you guys got too in March. And even yeah. going into April, that probably helped a lot. So again, mid mid June is usually when when rivers peak in Colorado, and depending okay. on how far north and south you are, earlier in certain areas, later in certain areas, it's not only where you are in longitude and latitude, but it's kind of what your elevation is. It depends on uh, when the river peaks, but it's usually sort of mid June. Um, Shifting gears into climbing 14ers, since you guys offer that as a, as a guided trip, uh, are you guys seeing the influx of uh, outdoor recreation growing in your area, more people coming out to climb 14ers um, as outdoor recreation is kind of blowing up around the country? Yeah, we see a lot more people doing all sorts of recreational activities. I mean, the, the classic example for me is we also run shuttles for people that are doing river trips. And last year, we were having trouble finding parking spots for shuttle vehicles. And we found out sort of at the end of the season, we thought it was just an influx of private boaters primarily. But what we found out was that nobody would carpool. Everybody mm -hmm. had to come in their own vehicle. So they didn't because of COVID. So, but again, we just saw a tremendous increase in not only river traffic, but also the number of people that were hiking and climbing and doing all the activities, a lot of mountain biking. We have two new e-bike mountain or bike companies that have just kind of come into existence last year, just because of the popularity of e-bikes now. Yeah. It's definitely booming. Um, with climbing 14ers, what are some uh, best practices that people could, we could share with people about? Uh, if they're thinking, if they're a beginner, are there easier mountains to get to from you, from you, or if it's somebody's first time climbing a 14er, what are some things to know and consider before uh, hiking it? First thing is you got to have an early morning start. Like you want to be on your way up the peak as it's getting light. The second okay. thing is you got to be prepared for inclement weather. You definitely have to take rain gear. You got to take some extra warm gear. You want to take plenty of water. You want to take plenty of snacks and things. And you want to try to be on the top of the, the peak by midday at the latest. Maybe have a quick lunch and then get the hell out of there before the afternoon thunder showers come in. And okay. pretty much every afternoon, we get afternoon thunder showers here. We get act, act, afternoon cloud buildup. And if you're up there and you're on those ridges and the lightning strikes, you know, you need to get beat feet off the ridge as quick as you can and get down lower. So you're not the highest thing. And what we always recommend people to do is to, to sit on their pack or something else that's not as conductive of electricity as, say, the earth is. And uh, okay. just wait for that to pass. And 
there's a there's a way to figure out how the lightning is coming your way and you know you count seconds between the thunder booms and it's moving your way then that's the time to sort of make a, a retreat and then as, as it goes past you you'll know and so you can start hiking again but the big thing that i see so many people do is they're they're not prepared you know their shorts and tennis shoes and t-shirts and baseball hats and they got very little water and they leave too late in the day you know they start up to the peak at 10 in the morning or something and mm-hmm. then they kind of get caught out uh later in the afternoon when the weather changes got it no those are really great um practical tips that hopefully we can you know uh avoid those emergencies up there and have a more enjoyable trip the other thing i'll just throw in is that on all the 14ers around here you actually get cell phone coverage so if you do have an emergency and you have a cell phone you can call 911 and get you know the local local search and rescue to come and deal with you and again one of the things I do is I teach technical rope rescue courses. So I teach a lot of the search and rescue groups around the state of Colorado how to do both high angle and low angle sorts of rescues and those kinds of things. Great. Um, you have so much experience in courses and fishing. I feel like we could go on for days. Uh, but I, I am really curious about the I'm switching gears back and forth, but uh, I'm really interested in your bluegrass trip and the classical river trips that you guys offer, the eight-day and two-day trips, uh, and what that entails. Music and rafting and outdoor recreation all combined in one. I mean, this is a, a hack that more people need to know about. Yeah. Well, again, for 30-some years now, we've been offering an eight-day classical music trip on the Green River with a string quartet. A couple of times, we've actually had a quintet and added a flute player. But... Uh, that usually happens toward the end of July. And uh, again, it's a wilderness oriented trip and it's way out in the, the middle of nowhere. And so we have to actually fly our clients into a little mesa right above the river. And then we kind of encourage them to hike down to the river, but we pick people who don't want to hike up in our van and then pick up their personal gear and stuff to get it down to the river. And then uh, we do eight days on the river and um, there's pretty much music every every day because these guys are always practicing for the next concert. So they get into camp and they break out the stuff and we pitch a tarp so they got shade and comfort and they start practicing. You know, it'll be they'll play a little bit and then they'll talk about what they just did. And then they usually do about four formal concerts in the eight days. And uh, they're pretty long concerts, you know, a couple of hours. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's just it's just a cool experience. And for years, we've been thinking about um, doing a bluegrass trip here on the Arkansas. And this year we've actually put it together for the 9th and 10th of, uh, of July this year. And um, there's uh, a guy that has done some, some music with us. We, we had a 40, 50, 70 party a few years ago where we were 40 years in the river business, um, 50 years of marriage, and we both turned 70. So oh, we amazing. had this guy came and played music, the, the bluegrass stuff, and it's his band that's coming to do it. And uh, oh, that sounds like a blast. Yeah. Uh, so are these the, the river guides are also the musicians or are they separate? groups? No, no, no. The musicians are all separate. I mean, most musicians are all for the separate. classical music trip. Most of our mu- musicians for years came from the L.A. Philharmonic. Okay. And then a lot of those guys got older, and so we started branching out, and we've gotten people from the Boston Symphony, we've got Santa Fe Symphony, uh, you know, it just kind of varies where we get our musicians from, and so we've learned over the years that you just get one person that wants to put a quartet together, and you let them 
find the other players. And so we've got a, a guy now that's put, I think, the last three quartets together for us. Okay. And the concerts that are happening, are they just for the private groups that are on the river trip or are they end up in towns and... No, no, no. It's a wilderness. It's a wilderness nowhere. setting. I mean, we're we're wilderness nowhere. camping, and it's it's just people on our trip that get to listen to it. And periodically, you'll camp next to someone else, or somebody will see. I've got a a huge, big old silver box that the, all the instruments fit in, and yeah. people will see that box and they say, "Where are you camping tonight?" And they try to camp close. And so we sort of say, "Yeah, but there, there's a fee. You have to bring us ice because ice yeah. in the desert is <laughs> is gold." <laughs> I bet. And so yeah. they have to bring us a block of ice to come and listen. And okay, quite a few people, and some people just float by and sort of go really slow as they float by so they can hear the music. And... Paddling backwards a little bit, taking a longer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, well, this is so amazing. I love uh, your passion for conservation, Bill, and the work that you guys are doing. Uh, it could not be easy to run a company that it has offered so many adventures. Uh, just a little behind the scenes about what does it take to run a rafting company? What are all the things you guys are managing on a day-to-day basis, getting people out, have, you know, uh, safely making sure they're having fun. How do you find guides? Like, what is it, what does a day look like in, or a week look like in Bill's, Bill's world? Well, what I tell you is you have to learn how to thrive on chaos because things change. Like people come late, different things happen. Uh, you know, I always tell guides that you're not on the river trip you think you're going to be on until you push away and float down the river because I might have to grab you and take you somewhere else. And so it can be pretty complex. And I guess I've always kind of had that uh, personality that I thrive on that chaos. I like solving problems. I like making things come together and work. But uh, my daughter actually worked as head guide one season. She'd worked as a guide for a number of seasons and uh, she came up to the end uh, to me at the end of the year and she said, you know, I lost 20 pounds doing this. I don't know how you've done this for all these years, but I can't do it again. <laughs> and she grew up with it. So, you know, it's just one of those things, I guess it takes a certain sort of mental intellect to, to sort of thrive on that sort of stuff. And, and it, I like the challenge of it, I guess, it, you know, not just the challenge of running the rivers and the white water and all that other stuff, but the challenge of coordinating the logistics and putting it all together and, uh, and making it all happen. So I guess I That's hope incredible. that answers your question. Yeah, it totally does. I mean, you have to, you have to enjoy that chaos or be able to, yeah, you thrive on it and you don't uh, let that shake you. And it sounds like it actually fields you in, in many ways. So. Uh, Bill, is there uh, any uh, any tips for outdoor recreation to for recreating responsibly, visiting Salida responsibly? Are there leave no trace principles that you'd like to share? Concerns that you're seeing with the increase in outdoor recreation, uh, either from Salida's point of view, or just rafting or outdoor recreation in general. You know, I guess the big thing is I think you need to have a respect for the environment you're going into and can't just think, well, I saw a TV show or I read a coffee table book and I'm young and fit and I'm bomb proof and I can go and do these things. Uh, And we see people all the time that, you know, bite off more than they can handle or get caught out because, you know, things change, the weather changes or something breaks or something happens. So, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to discourage people from coming outdoors, but I would encourage people to have 
a little bit of respect for the environment they're getting into and understand that if you don't have that respect, it can come back and bite you. And uh, I see a lot of people that want to come and rent boats and things like that that have no kind of concept about what they're getting into. They just think, oh, I'm going to lollygag and float down the river. And they don't realize that this is a whitewater river and you've got to have some sort of skill and you've got to have some sort of not necessarily expertise, but common sense about the environment that you're getting into and, and understanding what the consequences are if you don't do things in the right order in the right way. No, that's really helpful and it helps uh, not just them have a better experience, but all the resources that go in into uh, rescue, search and rescue and preventing some of these things could really uh, have a great impact. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Uh, we look forward to coming back and visiting you. I'm going to try to get on the calendar for the, the bluegrass or the classical music trip. That sounds incredible. And if there's uh, anything we can do to help promote uh, Dvorak, Dvorak, which is how it's pronounced, uh, please let us know. You can find Dvorak on tripoutside.com or on their website and their Instagram, DVK. Um, I'm going to get this. The other, right. You know, the other thing that we talked about that uh, DVK is actually DVK SUP. And so we actually do rants and, and teach people how to stand up paddleboard. And so that's becoming very popular. And uh, I forgot to even mention that because my son does most of that. He's very good. He can do class four whitewater and SUP. On a SUP. Okay. Well, yeah. I don't have to get your son uh, on the podcast to talk about uh, river running on a paddleboard. That just seems mind blowing. Uh, but DvorakExpeditions.com, DVKSUP, and you can find them on Instagram and, of course, on Trip Outside. Thank you so much for joining me today, Bill. I really enjoyed the conversation and I truly mean it. Thank you for all the work that you've been doing for conservation and protecting our wild places and keeping them wild. No worries, Reed. Thanks for having me. Hey there, adventure seekers. Thank you for listening to another episode of Adventure Travel with Trip Outside. If you enjoyed the conversation, please share it with your friends, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to stay up to date on where we travel to next. If you felt inspired to travel, go to tripoutside.com. It's the fastest way to book outdoor adventures all in one place.